Welcome to Leap Into Your Story podcast, where you discover your inner story, break down the process, and meet others who've done it so you can leap into your own story. We interview amazing guests who provide powerful insights that inspire you to get your story told. Be sure to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com, and while you're there, subscribe and like us via your favorite social media network. Now sit back, get ready to take some notes, and let's get started. This episode of Leap Into Your Story podcast is brought to you by Leap Into Your Story course. Visit leapintoyourstory.com where you have a guide to get your story told. I'm Victoria Anderson. Welcome to the Leap Into Your Story podcast, where you discover your inner story, work through the process, and meet others who've done it already. We interview amazing guests who provide powerful insights that will inspire you to leap into your own story. So be sure to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com. And while you're there, subscribe and like us via your favorite social media network. In this episode, we're going to learn about summoning inspiring shadows. My guest today is Dave Reek. He's a dark epic fantasy author and a Story Grid certified editor. So, Dave, thank you for joining us today. Now, thanks for having before, me on. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited um, to have you uh, talk about epic dark fantasy, but first, before we dive into questions and discussions, tell us a little bit about your writing journey, because according to your bio, you didn't really start out as a writer in your early career path. So take nah. us along how you ended up writing. <laughs> Unless you count software as fiction, then I've been doing that for longer than just about anything else. Writing became novels, became something I was really committed to doing in about 2011. So it's been a decade of me trying to figure out how to assemble a story. I have a lot of trunk novels, and I'm, I'm still mad. Many people, my first editor, Phil Athens and Chuck Wendig, have all told me, you're going to have to write a million words of, do you have a bleep? I, I guess I won't use that word. Crap. <laughs> <clears throat> in order to figure out how to write a good story. And I was like, no, I can do it faster than that. I'm better than that. And I'm not. So it took a whole bunch of books, lots and lots of words under the bridge. I found Story Grid, which helped me as a nerd understand the engineering principles and at least begin crafting better. So this year, my debut goes out in October. Uh, I found my voice and my brand, and it's just taken a long time because I, I still have that onerous day job, which pays the bills and establishes the lifestyle and the empty condo that I'm sitting in right now because we just moved to Seattle. But it's been, it's been a sojourn, but I've enjoyed the process. Sometimes you get stuck. Sometimes you got to figure it out. Critique groups have been really, really helpful to me because writing can be lonely. It can be a solo thing sometimes. But having people to work with, having writing coaches to encourage you and point you in the right direction, um, and having great editors. The editor I'm working with for this particular quadrilogy is fantastic. Shayla is really supportive, encouraging, and 
apparently she needs to be there because I don't know what a comma is for. I either have too many of them or not enough of them. I, I thought I knew. I'm a native speaker of English. I got an almost perfect score on the verbal section of the SAT, but apparently uh, Chicago Manual of Style and I disagree about where commas go. So here I am launching my first book, Kickstarters next month, and the uh, book follows in October. So we'll have hardcovers, we'll have paperbacks and eBooks. But it, it, for me, it's learning. This is an investment in a future career. Eventually, I'm going to get tired of wrangling nerds and writing software, and I'll, I'll want to settle in. So maybe write full-time is an option. Most authors don't. Historically, since the printing press was invented, most authors have another job. There's the rare 0.01% who are so supremely successful on purpose or by accident that they can live without that other income. But I think maybe once the condo's paid for, I'll lean on my wife, who's a teacher. We'll just live on hers, and she can be my sugar mama, and I can just write and stare out across Elliott Bay and watch the Eagles and someday finish another book. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Well, let's go ahead and dive into some questions. So okay. let's, let's start out with... Um, what does dark epic fantasy mean? So tell us a little bit about that genre. It's, it's a squishy definition. Dark fantasy originally years ago meant horror in a fantasy setting of some kind. I think it's taken on other connotations like the evolution of anti-hero has, has come to mean something different than it used to mean. So for me, dark epic fantasy is nation level stakes or cosmic power levels things that rock the world but dark means that we don't shy away from the gritty reality the gore the horror the, the parts of thing the parts of war and danger and politics that tolkien and a lot of epic fantasy shy away from so historically since Herodotus and Homer and the Iliad, war has been glorified. It's always the charge of the light brigade. It is this glorious thing and we don't get the reality of it. Uh, and I think that dark is more willing to show us the shadow agency in all of us. Humans are not creatures of light and joy and responsibility and justice. That's only half of us. The other half of us are the shadow agency. It's the monster inside all of us, as Plato would describe it, that gives us the power to survive, to thrive, to take care of our own, and to take what we want from the world. And in reality, it's a balance. I think that a lot of poetry and a lot of epic fantasy that's, that gives it a, I don't know, a fluffy context, um, I think that Sanderson does a good job at balancing. Miss Bourne is, is a great story, and he gets into some of the darkness, but there's a whole bunch of shadows that he avoids and doesn't talk about that doesn't happen on the page. He alludes to it, whereas Martin and Abercrombie and Rice and Lawrence, 
go there. They take you into not just the room where it happens, but inside the body it's happening to. And I think that there are a lot of readers who want to vicariously experience that sort of horror and terror and adventure without actually experiencing it. Because the reality of it is somewhat shocking. But we see it on the news now. We live in a world that's not PG-rated anymore. The news is as R-rated as just about anything you can get from Netflix or Cinemax or whoever's making content these days. And that's where, for me, dark epic fantasy lives. Uh, It's people who sometimes do bad things for good reasons. An anti-hero may not be someone you aspire to be, but it's certainly somebody you want in your corner if you need a rescue. That's a very interesting insight. Somebody you don't necessarily want to be, or but you want in your corner if you need him. <laughs> yeah, everybody needs a friend like Saul. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs a friend like White. Everybody needs somebody you can call when it goes wrong. One of my favorite series that seems to be wrapping up is The Blacklist. Raymond Reddington is the kind of guy you want to know, but you may not want to hang out with. You may not want to go into business with, but you have a card. And when something goes wrong, that's the, that's the call you make. You drop a dime and say, I need a favor. Right. Or who will do something that you would like to do, but you don't want to do it yourself. <laughs> yeah, because you don't want to get caught or you, right. don't wanna, you don't want to dismember a body. Right. You don't want to go get a sulfuric acid and dissolve it. Yes. Yeah, somebody else take care of that. You, yeah. you have cleaners for that. But yeah. in the grand scheme of things, uh, I think that more people have those impulses and dark fantasy allows us to experience them and to work through them. So through those of us who write it, like Stephen King writes horror. He's written a lot of very dark fantasy. And he has said on the record, he does it so he doesn't go insane because he has those impulses. And I, like Stephen, I believe everyone does. There are a lot of people who tell you that they never get angry. They never have fights with anybody. They've never wanted to murder someone and dispose of the body. If they're over the age of seven, I think they're lying. (laughs) Possibly, possibly. Or they live in a Pollyanna world that I've never experienced. Well, As as a former cop, I can tell you that there's a point at which anybody will snap. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's interesting that you bring up the kind of Pollyanna because I just read an article recently about toxic positivity yeah um and this i think dark fantasy is actually on the other spectrum which brings me into my next question which is you know do you think they is there still do you know what the popularity or the need for dark fantasy i mean (laughs) toxic positivity may create that need (laughs) but 
Let, let's talk about. So a lot of people ask, why and, would you and yeah, the not, desire um, of that genre? I mean, has that gained popularity recently? I, has it stayed popular? I think so, but I haven't done the market research. My okay. friend Alex Newman at Kalytics could tell you whether it's trending up or down, okay. but I have high positivity personalities that don't like dark fantasy that ask, well, why do you write that? After the pandemic, aren't we done with that? Isn't the world already horrible enough and we need light and hope and joy? I don't think so. Game of Thrones gained a lot of popularity once HBO put it on the map. Uh, We won't talk about the ending because that's a different story. But in the grand scheme of things, I think that there are people who enjoy that. Um, I just now got around to watching the series on Netflix, the second season of Altered Carbon. It's dark sci-fi. Now, the difference, I think, between sci-fi and fantasy for me is sci-fi's always had an inner core. There's a little line of darkness in sci-fi that fantasy hasn't had um, and has only slowly developed over time. Tolkien gave us the concept of high fantasy in a way that I don't think we had before. And that's kind of separated the constructed world fantasy from the urban, what we call urban fantasy now, that used to be called low fantasy. The common world, the everyday world, with some elements of magic or magical realism. Um, But in the grand scheme of things, I think that people want more of it because they're looking for a way to navigate what we're experiencing every day. Whether it's revolution, the fall of Kabul, or earthquakes and horrible things in Haiti, the collapse of countries like Venezuela. What if it happens here? Because some of us wonder, everything that has ever begun, every country, every democracy has eventually ended. Right. How will we navigate that? And some people want to think through, what do I do if that happens? Some people want a little more separation. So urban fantasy, I think, is more visceral. And it's real. It's right here. It's in my world. What if I do these things? It's a thriller. The, for me, the epic part of fantasy, the high fantasy constructed world, separates us a little more than zombies in the streets today so it's an exploration for me the quadrilogy that i'm writing the first book comes out in october is the temple of vengeance i've always loved a good revenge story the count of monte cristo and any retelling of that i i love the series revenge it's fantastic for me it's about exploring what do i do full disclosure i'm a scorpio don't cross me but <laughs> but as, as a very much older person now, I've learned how to navigate the world and let that go. And so this is an exploration of an antiheroine who's trying to set the world right. And her crisis question for four books is, can I set it right? Can I fix it without setting the whole world on fire? And I, sometimes I think you got to light a match set things on fire. Yeah. Well, it goes back to the balance. You know, I studied chi and mm-hmm. the great chi masters will tell you that you, you know, it, 
enlightenment is not about all light. It's about right. the integration and not, not necessarily integration. Cause I know there's some um, philosophies that always talk about integration. It's the coexistence and the balance. So one, you can't have Absolutely. too much. If you have too much light, then you get the Pollyanna, um, you know, unrealistic, toxic positivity. And if you're too much dark, the darkness will, that's the dark side of human nature. That will be the sociopath, psychological, you know, the um, uh, psychopath, sociopath that just destroys everything in the path. So I think with dark epic fantasy is it's one of those counterbalance things that are needed. And it's it's finding the place where the shadow is necessary, where you have to let your platonic monster loose in the triune psyche that Plato, Plato talks about the, the person, the monster and the lion are the way that I think Jung talks about the same thing. And what you're describing is the balance of light and shadow. We have to have both and trying to cut shadow out of our world. It throws makes us, makes us victims of bullies. It makes us victims of tyrants. It makes us victims of the panhandler on the corner just because we're scared and we don't have enough shadow, enough monster agency to say back off. No, not today. Right. And sometimes you got to protect your own. Exactly. Exactly. I know my books, the, all of them I have, um, and I, and it's by the third book. So touched trial by fire and mastering the paradox really understands that my shadow women, which are these females in my path that are always stopping me from you know, a victory. And the long story short is I learned more about myself and what I needed to step up to get past that. And in the end, I mean, there is, it's a counterbalance. I mean, every single one of them has some sort of like karmic uh, retribution come their way, but it happens organically. I didn't have to do anything, but that only came after I understood a little bit and took what I need from them, which was the, what some of the, their traits I needed to incorporate in myself and stop trying to push it away. Cause I knew deep down that was a necessary thing for me to get to my next level. And I think that's something that as authors, the, I learned most clearly from Sean Coyne when I was going through the story grid certification, he talks about why we write and everybody's writing a book for a reason. Every author's trying to figure something out. Yes. If you're now sure there are people who, who have cookie cutters, they write to market, they follow a, a basic structure and a template. And for them, it, it's, a, it's a piece of work. It's a pot boiler. They're just writing to make money. And that's fine. But any work in which you're creatively engaged, you're, you're trying to figure out a problem for yourself. Mm-hmm. You're trying to uh, psychologically or metaphysically sort something out. Uh, Stephen Pressfield talks about that in his Artist's Journey book. The book, 
that you're writing, you're on the same journey or a similar parallel journey to the hero that you're writing about to figure something out along with the hero because the artist's journey follows the hero's journey. Right. So that catharsis is important. And I think that's one of the differences between books that we just flip through, we page through, we read and we enjoy, have a lot of strong narrative drive. They pull us into the next chapter with cliffhangers, but we close it and we're done. We're not any different. What I want to write, my aspiration, my intention is to write books that change people for the better. My philosophy is that better stories make better people because how we think is in story. Literally, we, I don't believe we're homo sapiens anymore. Since the Toba event, we have been homo nerens because we cannot even think without story. It's so fundamental to processing things whether it's a, what psychologists call rationalization, or if it's figuring it out, forecasting into the future, figuring out what we do next is a story we're telling ourselves. So I, for me, this one is a story that I'm trying to figure out how far is too far, how much vengeance is tolerable, how much is too much. And that's the exploration, for at least for this beginning series. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, great insight. Uh, I think you're right, because even some other authors that I question about, you know, what do you, what's, what's about the characters, your lead characters, you, but what are you kind of jealous of them too? And <laughs> one that kind of surprised him because she was like, no, I'm not jealous. And she's like, wait, she had a mother uh-huh. that I never had that, you know, didn't, you know, I, my mother was this and the character's mother was, um, you know, the mother I always wanted. So sometimes this does come up unconsciously. I think we do that unconsciously. You Um, can see that in musicians. You can see that in poets in authors in movie makers. I honestly think that the screenwriters, whoever's writing the NCIS series has got some serious daddy issues that they're working through in season 18 or whatever they're up to now, because every story is a relator story and it's all about dad. There are others that are all about mom and mommy issues. We all have them. We all have these scars. If we're all over the age of infancy, we have accumulated some things we need to work through. I honestly, my personal belief is everybody needs a counselor, whether it's a formal therapist relationship or a friend, because every good relationship should be a little therapeutic. You and I talk through something. We're helping each other in some way. And the people who think they don't need a shrink need one worse than the people who are willing to talk to one. But that's that's where I come from. Mental health is something we don't talk about enough. And I explore one of the conceits of the magic system in my book is that our memories are who we are it's what we are they are a composition of magic and so the world the physical world is also composed of the same energy and during the course of the first book because she doesn't take the time to learn how to use magic correctly my anti-heroine loses memories she burns part of herself to accomplish her goals and forgets important things because we got to be careful. And honestly, one of the, the scarier things for people who are around me 
would be Alzheimer's or diseases that cause people dementia. Uh, if it happens to me, that's great. I don't care because I won't know. <laughs> but if it happens to my wife, that's where it's heartbreaking. Right. I have three kids with autism. And so I'm very sensitive to neurodiversity and to disability. I have an adult child who's going to live with us in perpetuity because he isn't independent enough to live on his own. Um, I'm hoping to find the magic pill someday that's going to fix that and send him off into the world like his siblings. But uh, I think that we all need to stop and take a look at the people around us, the people we go to work with and consider their point of view. And that's one of the beauties of stories. It lets us inhabit another person. I think readers are better people simply because they're more accustomed to putting their mind in somebody else's shoes and thinking about something from someone else's perspective. Uh, we need to get more people reading. There's too many people who are willing to just watch Netflix and chill. And I don't think that's the same. It's a different medium because it's, it's a spectacle you're watching. You're not participating in reading is more personal. Because you become, for a good, well-written story anyway, you inhabit the skin of the characters that you are experiencing. Right. It, and there's studies that prove it's a different part of the brain that's activated. Mm -hmm. uh, TV or TV screens have a hypnotic kind of effect on the brain versus the reading, which again is interactive like you had mentioned for a good book though. I don't actually remember reading <laughs> pages go by and I, I, I don't even read dead trees anymore. I read almost exclusively digital and wow. who knew I read faster because turning pages takes too much time, but I do like the feel and the smell of a good book paper hardcover stuff. That's the reason why we're, we're doing the Kickstarter in September for the hardcover because I want one. I want to put it on my empty shelves that I, I haven't got anything to move into yet. But. Well, when the digital uh, publishing hit the scene, I remember mm. seeing all the articles, oh, paper's dead. It'll never come back. Um, my our, culture is, our culture is slow. <laughs> we don't move quickly. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of visionaries, people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, forget sometimes is they're on the bleeding edge or on the way past the bleeding edge of adoption of things. Most people don't 90% of the population are late movers and late adopters. And culturally we still use words and terms that are thousands of years old. Exactly. Well, what's interesting about that within two years, the demand actually did a pendulum swing back to the other spectrum. And mm -hmm. my publisher, uh, my first book, which is Touched, uh, they weren't able to pivot uh, because the print-on-demand software was so expensive. They couldn't, well, they had the software, but they couldn't mesh it with the existing mm -hmm. software and ultimately went belly up. Actually, there was two oh, publishers. Gosh. One I signed a contract with one that was just entertaining. They said, send us more samples, but they were having the identical problem because the pendulum uh, swung so fast and so unexpected that they couldn't pivot 
to meet the demands and fill the publishing, um, you know, quota that they needed to stay in business. But I know 2020 did the same thing. 2020 saw an uptick in readership and we're seeing a downward trend, I think, in 2021 as people are starting to try to get back to something like what we had before in the before times. But I think that pod is going to get better as the printers get cheaper and we can move them on shore. Right now, the, the distribution channel, the supply chain is so fragile We've got to get to a place where it's more anti-fragile and we have local, whether it's Canadian or Mexican or in the U.S., publishing capacity and manufacturing capacity, just to think about everything, that we are more sustainable and not dependent on other outsourced things. Not to get political, but it there were a lot of things I wanted in 2020 that just were in a warehouse in Shanghai or Beijing or couldn't in Hong Kong, couldn't get her. So I think we'll make that shift. We'll get to a place where we do have more of that because pod is the, I think the future, there's no reason to print a warehouse full of books. If you could, if you can in a weekend assemble 15 copies that were ordered last week and ship them, that's probably good enough. Uh, but there will always be those printing at scale. There's James Patterson still going to have a million copies of something printed every time he publishes a new book Yes, because the demand is there. He, he is on that end of the scale. He's one of the, his masterclass was fascinating. It was a very interesting watch for me. And I will continue to study people with that level of success. But for me, writing's a vocation. I'm not doing it to become a millionaire. I'm doing it because I want to put those stories out in the world and share them with people. And I want to change the world. So if I can find five or 10 people who are my tribe, I mean, I think I maybe have a dozen people not counting my mom and my wife on my newsletter right now, but those are the people I'm writing for. They're the people who care enough to read those pages And I will gather them over time and we will continue to inhabit this world together. And there are many, many more books to come. I have three series planned in my head and some on paper to follow this one. So what I want to do is go from where I've begun at the cosmic power level. And eventually in the third or fourth series, we're talking about personal stakes. Because for me, those are far more interesting for the, the person and how they are navigating their ordinary life with things that are at risk that we can all equate with because the presidential level of politics or the God level of, polit- of, of cosmic power is fascinating. It's interesting to a lot of us, but it's not something that I do on a daily basis. I have 24 employees at my day job and wrangling nerds at that level is interesting and it's useful because I get to know them personally. I get to know their families. I get to know what their life is like and help them navigate things the way that I have. Uh, Most of them are, are much younger, but I think stories at that level, uh, stories like Mark Lawrence writes uh, red sister for me was a fascinating book about a young woman navigating a world from a horrible situation to a much higher power level 
and she evolves. Nona makes significant changes. And I really enjoyed her story as she grew up and I'm looking forward to reading the rest of that. So that's where I want to get to, but I need to build the world. And so I've begun at the cosmic level, at the, at the pantheon level. And the new goddess who is being born through this quadrilogy is the genesis of all of what will follow. Nice. Now let's, and this is your first book, correct? This is the first one that I'm going to actually let other people read. <laughs> it's not my first book, but it's the first one that I actually feel confident enough to put out in the world, pay for a cover and sell. Okay. Uh, so yeah, we'll just, okay. we'll just pretend it's my first book. Okay. So, well, let's talk about um, your goal for writing. What are what are your goals, your hopes, your dreams, and how, what, what's your definition of it's, if it's succeeded, it, how it succeeds, or what you'll okay. consider it being a success? For me, um, if one person's life is made better and they make a different choice because they read my book, I win. Full stop. I'm losing money publishing this book. It's costing me more to hire people to help me with marketing and to publish the book and paint really beautiful paintings. My artists are fantastic that I can use for advertising and put out into the world. And that's okay. My goal is to gather some attention and to gather a tribe of people who like the kinds of books that I write. So the success will be a wild success would be to make back all the money I've invested in the book. That would be amazing. If that happens, cool. Then we're ahead of the game. But as in any business, I've started many businesses. I've had lots of startups in my career. I'm an entrepreneurial personality. They all lose money to begin with. And a lot of authors that I talk to people who are, Oh, I want to write a book and then I can pay off my house. Uh, that's adorable. That's, really very unlikely to happen. It could. I don't want to uh, destroy your dreams and hope, but I also want to set reasonable expectations. My clients as a StoryGrid certified editor, when I'm helping them, I want to set those reasonable expectations that 99% of the books on Amazon sell fewer than 10 copies a year. They don't even sell one a month. There's 10 million books out there on Kindle, and the vast majority of them have copies bought by friends and family or the author themselves and gifted to other people because please read my book. I get it. I understand. And it's hard. Advertising costs money, paying attention, getting attention costs money. And so if you go into it with the mindset of this is something I'm doing as a vocation. So I love the Elizabeth Gilbert formulation where you have job, career, vocation, and, and hobby. For a lot of authors, writing is a hobby. And it could turn into something, but if that's all there, it isn't even their core. For me, it's a vocation. It's something I'll do for free, and I'm actually paying other people to be for the privilege of doing it. So <clears throat> if, I get, if I actually sell more than 250 copies, yay! If I sell more than 1,000, I'm way ahead of the game. That puts me in the 1% territory. So... In the grand scheme of things, I'm giving away ARCs right now. Anybody on my newsletter gets a copy of the book. They can read it. I'm not charging them. All I ask is uh, give me an honest review on Goodreads. Tell me what you think. 
they're not, the reviews aren't even really for me. They're for other readers. Because I think that too many people want to write a book that everybody will love. And that you'll result, you, you write a milk toast book. You'll write a book that I love vanilla, but most people apparently don't. Everybody thinks vanilla is just boring. But if you want to write a book that changes people, you have to take a position. It's polarizing. It's something that a lot of people won't like. And that's okay. I'm not looking for those people. I talked to a guy in the elevator who made who teased me about my shirt. And I said, well, yeah, I'm a novelist. My wife bought me the shirt. And he said, what do you write? And so I described the book. He's like, oh, well, good luck with that. Because he's not my readership. Because I could just tell in describing this dark, epic fantasy story. He's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's not his jam. I'm not writing it for him. Like Seth Godin says, it's not for you. I'm sorry. And carry on to the next. So if if I get some great one-star reviews, I'm going to use them for advertising. Some of my author friends do that. Willa Blair has one of my favorite one-star reviews for one of her books. And it's, this reads just like Diana Gabaldon, one star. Well, thank you. <laughs> That's amazing. So if I, so if I, if I get a one star review like that, I would be happy to turn that into an ad because that sends a signal to readers who look at the one star reviews and go, oh, well, I like Diana Gabaldon. I'd give that five stars. So I'll give this book a try. Um, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but I see the meme go around every once in a while about Silence of the Lambs. Not a single lamb, one star. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Somebody came into this with the entirely wrong expectation. And that's that's a signal. Um, Beverly Jenkins, who's a, a friend of mine, my acquaintance. I've met her enough. I've been through some of her workshops. She's a fantastic romance writer. I really enjoy her books. She says reviews are not for authors. We shouldn't even read them. They're for other readers. It's readers talking to each other and letting each other know what this book is about, what it's like, and who it's for. And so that's that's the primary reason I ask for reviews. If I need validation, I go ask my wife how wonderful I am, and she will tell me exactly how wonderful I am. And, uh, and being old enough now that I don't, really need that that's okay yeah well you you have to set out with realistic (laughs) expectations but I know of at least one author who uses all his bad reviews and he had some weird one like the lamb Mm -hmm. (laughs) silence and they're hilarious he sends them out on his uh, his email for his uh, Mm -hmm. newsletter they are hilarious and he's actually (laughs) hoping for goofy ones because we all wait for (laughs) that I saw one on Twitter and the, the author came to Twitter to apologize to the Goodreads reviewer who found his story about vampires on a submarine unrealistic. Yeah, yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Sorry. Lona Andrews had one. I remember when I was looking, I was reading through a lot of urban fantasy and I saw the review for this book. This it was just crit, a criticism of the choreography of the fights. Obviously, this person was super into fencing. It was a it was a male name, so I'm assuming it's a male reader who somehow wound up in a paranormal romance, thinking he was getting a Dresden Files type urban fantasy. I'm saying the story's not about the fight scene, dude. The story is about something else. 
we're sorry that it is not meeting your expectations. However, um, the, the author is not going to change. Yeah. This is, this is the, I, I, I adore uh, the Jane Yellow Rock series by Faye Hunter. And some of it is absurd. Some of the fight scenes are so ridiculous and over the top. And for me, every time the vampires move faster than sound, I'm like, but I don't care. I put it aside because I, I love Faith's style. I love her Soulwood series. I mean, I, I love, I love Nell. I wish she would stop writing about Jane and just write about Nell all the time, but there's not enough for me to read. So I got to read something else. The Walker papers is one of my other favorite series. I think that's fantastic. And it's, ridiculous and over the top at the power of the cosmic power level that the walker's at now of course she's a shaman if somebody came into this expecting realism you're in the wrong place i'm sorry (laughs) if it doesn't work for you great put it down you don't have to finish a book and i think that that's one thing that a lot of us who grew up having to finish books in in school we're obligated we feel like we have to if i start a book i have to finish it and now that I'm old, I don't feel that way anymore. I'll DNF a book really fast. In the first chapter or two, no. If the epilogue is 20 pages of people who aren't even the protagonist and it has nothing to do with the story, the author doesn't value my time enough to get going. Oh, sorry. And, and I think that's part of the challenge that I struggled with when I wrote my first book. That's not my first book. The, my Phil Athens, my editor, deleted the first 900 words and said, your story starts here. I'm like, but how will they know all the things? And the reader doesn't need to know all the things. And that's for, for writers. We have to write that stuff, but we also have to learn how to delete those words. And we have to learn how to meet the reader's expectations and get the story going because a contemporary reader is very different. When East of Eden was a big deal, Readers had a slower expectation. It was a a generation who was accustomed to, I'm going to read a chapter and then I'm going to go to sleep. And I need to finish this book because everybody else is reading it. I won't know what they're talking about if I also haven't read this book. We're in a niche world now where my, my daughter is reading Korean crime drama from the 50s. She and about 50 other people on the planet are the only one reading those stories right now. And that's okay. Because they don't, we don't all have a, we don't have a global monolithic culture anymore. So I'm just looking for the, the 50 people that like really dark epic fantasy, want an anti-heroine, and don't mind some sex and graphic violence on the page. There are a lot of people who don't, and that's okay. I'm not writing for them. That's it. That is it. So, yes. Well, we've covered quite a bit of ground. <laughs> And some really great insights. So one last question. And where can we find this first book? Not really your first book, but first book to the readers. <laughs> the <laughs> and, best place and is the newsletter. I mean, where, where can we find you have a website or where? How can so Dave you- Reed Central is just Dave Reed, R-E-E-D dot me. That's my website. You can find all of the things linked there. The pre-order is up on Amazon right now. I'm trying to teach the algorithm who likes this book so they'll know who to show it to. 
Um, I will be wide. My intention is to be on Apple Books and Google Play and everywhere else that ebooks are, and um, in every bookstore that is willing to order from Ingram. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, uh, Dave D A V E Reed R E E D dot M E is where you can find the newsletter. You can find the Kickstarter, which is launching in about a week and a half, and all of the other things. The pre-orders right there on the front page. And I occasionally blog about random things. I like to recommend other authors' books and tell people what I enjoy reading, what I think is fascinating, and everything's very much focused on my niche. So if you're looking for Pollyanna, you will not find it on my website. Good to know. (laughs) (laughs) You've all been forewarned. (laughs) Yes. I do. I have trigger warnings that I put put on the book because if there are because I don't want people who are going to be damaged by something I've written to wander into it by accident. Go, oh, my God, he put a kitten in a box. Full disclosure, I do not put kittens in boxes. That's not a thing that happens in my book. But just as a random example, I want to make sure that the people who are picking it up are finding what they're looking for and not be surprised or ambushed by something. And I don't know that enough authors are doing that. And I think fan fiction has made it normal for a lot of readers. And I think that more and more authors should. So if it's, if you're writing a book and your blurb doesn't let me know what's coming, maybe you should. I've read, I've, I've read some dark fantasy and I got to a place where I was like, Oh, I really wish she would have told me that was going to happen at some point in the blurb. Cause uh, yeah, I I have a fairly high squick factor, mm-hmm. but there are things. Diana Gabaldon's one of those. There are th- some things in Outlander that made me go, and it's not even the physical stuff. It's just the social stuff, the interpersonal stuff. I'm like, uh, no, Claire, I'm not sure that I can understand why you're forgiving Jamie for the spanking. I just, <laughs> I got maybe I'm just too modern a man, but I got a problem with that. <laughs> Well, you hear that? Y'all been warned. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on, Victoria. You're fun to talk to and have me back anytime. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe I have, I'll do a panel on dark authors. Um, there's awesome. a lot of stuff in the works that uh, I'm still working out the details, but it's been fun and a pleasure uh, to talk with you my, my challenge to the people who are watching because a lot of you will be authors is leap into your story get Thank started <laughs> continue writing don't quit all you have to do to win whatever you define as win is not quit good but it will it will take longer than you hope i'm sorry it, yes it, it just always does Yes, but that's okay because I'm working on a teaching series, the Leap Into Your Story series of uh, online courses that are going to be due out in the fall that's going to break down some of that process to make it easier. And I'm, yeah, and it's it's a unique blend. It's kind of a life coach, writing coach, because those two go hand in hand. So, most I have a team definitely. of writing coaches. I think mm-hmm. the reason I'm as, I've got as far as I am is Becca Simon and her team have helped me figure out how my brain is wired. I probably could have been diagnosed with autism when I was a kid, but back in the stone ages, nobody knew what to look for and what to diagnose. 
And so just figuring out my own neurology and my own writing process. And I, I love the fact that you're putting together a course specifically to help people work through. And for a lot of us, the blank page is terrifying. Yes, exactly. And there's a, lo- there's a lot of mythology out in the world. And it, there's different people. It works different ways. I love Nora Roberts, but she says you can't edit a blank page. Um, the way that my brain is wired, I absolutely do. I edit a whole bunch before I ever put fingers to keyboard. And so people hear that and they feel like they have to dump all this random stream of consciousness just so they have something to edit. But if that isn't how your brain works, if that's not how you're wired, that's not helpful. And love him or hate him, Stephen King says, you're not a real writer if you don't write 2,000 words a day. Okay, I'm not a real writer. Sorry, Steve. I'm Mr. Right. I'm not a writer. I, there's very few people I know who can do 2,000 words a day. I think it's maybe 800. He's an exception. Well, every, every, everybody's <laughs> different. And he is. I think, and he may, he, I think he sped up a little bit since he isn't doing eight balls and he's not on a cocaine bender every weekend. Um, he's writing more just to stay sane, which is one of the reasons I write. I need to pour it out of my head. I write morning pages just to dump that out. It's really necessary. But there's just learning how you work and what gets you going and your why. We talked about that. You asked me why I'm writing this. That's one of the most important things. Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, is foundational. You have to figure that out. And sometimes you got to write a lot of words. Like Chuck told me, you're going to write a million words of bleep before you figure out how to write a good story. Yeah damn it Chuck yes well that's really good confirmation because part of my course does have that in there there's all that you sometimes you just need somebody to hold your hand and for people who live in places where there aren't big writing groups or there's not like the Yukon writers or the San Antonio romance authors you need somebody to walk with you and I think Victoria you'd be a fantastic guide and mentor along that artist's journey so awesome thank you thank you well thank you dave uh again it's just been an amazing time with you and thank you for sharing those fantastic insights i know there's going to be some uh new writer who knows even a season one that needed a refresher with some new perspective as well. So do want to thank you for tuning into the Leap Into Your Story podcast, where you discover your inner story, work through the process, and meet others who've done it so you can be guided into your journey to writing your own story. So remember to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com and enjoy even more great episodes like this one. And again, while you're there, subscribe and like us via your favorite social media network. We are looking forward to seeing you next time on the Leap Into Your Story podcast. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Leap Into Your Story podcast where you discover your inner story, break down the process, and meet others who've done it so you can leap into your own story. Remember to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com and enjoy even more great episodes like this one. Again, while you're there, subscribe and like to us via your favorite social media network. We're looking forward to seeing you next time on 
the Leap Into Your Story podcast.